From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. This week, we're switching things up, and I'm talking to a woman who may read more books than I do. Her name is Adrienne Westenfeld, and she's an editor at Esquire focused on books and culture. She actually writes the books column that I used to write. I love her taste, and I'm so excited to have her on the show to share her book recommendations for this fall. Adrian also talks about the new way men are reckoning with masculinity in their writing, and her love of all things hobbits and Middle Earth. Enjoy this episode. was at Cosmo and then became the books editor there and it started to understand the publishing industry there. And then when someone connected me with Esquire afterwards, it was such an interesting mind flip or a, an exercise in putting yourself in, I guess, what we imagine a male point of view. And I'm wondering if that's something you keep in mind obviously, when you're looking for things to cover. You know, it is always on my mind that we are a men's magazine, but it's also always on my mind that we are a general interest magazine. And I I don't think of our reader as a man automatically. A lot of women read Esquire. I I think of the person I'm trying to target in my work as someone who's just an avid reader and, and a very literate person with diverse interests. They do want to read that nonfiction about business, but they also want to read a great novel. They love memoirs. They love reported nonfiction. I think they have broad, diverse tastes, whoever this person is. So I, I don't scratch my head too much about the, the men of it all. Although it can be really fun to there's this emerging class of books about masculinity that I think are really interesting. Men are doing more memoirs about this. Even some celebrities. There was that book, Justin Baldoni, the actor from Jane the Virgin put out. I'm blanking on the title, but it's it's all about rethinking his masculinity and his relationship to his body. I love stuff like that for Esquire. That is such an opener to a juicy, overdue conversation. So that can be a really fun way to be in the book space. I definitely remember craving male voices, mm-hmm. finding male voices and thinking, why aren't there kind of regular men, and that's not to be derogatory anyway, but just where are the voices of men? Mm-hmm. Do you think this interrogation of the male psyche came out of me too? Maybe so, maybe to some extent. Yeah, I mean, certainly men felt a lot of, they questioned themselves a lot. Am I part of the problem? Am I blind to the ways I have been part of the problem. And I definitely observe that at Esquire, a lot of men in our orbit having that that moment of self-reckoning. I'd say the nonfiction and fiction I'm drawn to are women doing that. Mm-hmm. Me too. I know men mm-hmm. who are complicated, flawed characters with all the nuance that I'm finding in fictional mm-hmm. women being written by women um, or nonfiction that women are writing, but I'm glad there's this emergence now. I'm so glad too. And I think it's part of a broader social issue with men and with the patriarchy, how we know that masculinity doesn't work so well for men either, that it limits their emotional vulnerability and their ability to express that publicly. So I think part of what's happening is as masculinity is changing, it's affecting the books too, because men, as they can be more freer with their emotions in their private life, so can they be on the page. One of my favorite things about working in magazine was the Monday morning meeting 
where everyone tells their stories about what's been interesting to them in the news or in culture or bringing their own stories to bear as a basis for a potential story. And I'm wondering if even though you've been in a pandemic and not Mm. in those rooms, but Mm. what kind of discussions are happening there or is there something that you've seen has kind of been changing or percolating? I don't know if this is so much a change, but to your point about who gets to tell these stories, that's something we're always discussing, wanting to expand who can write for Esquire to be inclusive and expansive. You know, a lot of people get the wrong idea about Esquire. I think that it's a a men's magazine set in its ways that only men can write for it. And I hear a lot of people in the publishing industry tell me, I didn't pitch you that book because I thought men wouldn't read it. And that just breaks my heart because we want to think bigger than that. So that's definitely something we're always talking about. Maybe in contrast to some women's magazines where the focus is always on fashion and how you look, as a woman, it was such a relief to read something that was smart and interesting Mm -hmm. and not also filled with pages of advice like on what to eat and how to work out. I wonder if men think that when they read Cosmopolitan, you know, that they can just page past the fashion pages and enjoy the great reporting or the great sex advice. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to have you here is that I wanted to have your perspective on what books we should be looking out for for fall. And we'll see if some of our lists connect in some way. Mm -hmm. So I think First up, time-wise, on my list is Matrix by Lauren Groff. I'm obsessed with this book. Read it in one sitting, one dark and stormy night, blew right through it. It's set in the 1100s. It's about a a real woman. Her name was Marie de France. She was the first female poet to write in the French language. Um, And not much is known about her. That's pretty much all we know about her, and that she wrote a series of Breton lays. Groff has fictionalized her life and kind of imagined her way into it. But we meet her at 17 years old. She has been cast out of the court of Eleanor of Aquitaine, deemed unmarriageable. She's too tall and strange. So she's been sent to an abbey, an impoverished abbey, to be the abbess and lift them from poverty, improve life at the abbey. I mean, she's 17. She's been rejected. She's very headstrong about it. She does not want to be there. But as time passes, she becomes a very fiercely devoted leader of these women. Um, She continues to write. She has these 19 beatific visions from the Virgin Mary, and the abbey eventually grows into one of the wealthiest abbeys in Europe with great political and spiritual power. Um, There's a line in the novel where she describes the abbey as an island of women, and I think that's part of what I love about the novel so much. It's it's peopled by all these incredible, strange, smart women Um, there's a lot of sapphic love in it, beautiful descriptions as we always get from Groff. I think it's just extraordinary and it's so transporting. How often do we get to read great fiction about the Middle Ages? Oh, I agree. I have read this one too and I similarly loved it. It takes us to another time and place, but we're learning along the way and it's truly things I had never heard about before, like the illuminated manuscripts we're learning about, but also how within an abbey structure, women had such freedom there Mm -hmm. that they could not have in the society at large. I I love the the fierce devotion we see among these women in this novel. And I think what we've come to expect from Groff as such a great writer of sentences, such rapturous, beautiful, descriptive sentences lends itself so well to a spiritual setting. Every paragraph, it's a joy to read. 
Well, I also heard her speak and she said that this came as a direct response to the election of Trump. That I had I had not put that any connection together in that way, but I think I'd love to reread it with that mm-hmm. lens. Oh, me as well. I saw there was a piece in the Atlantic, I think Sophie Gilbert wrote it, where she Groff reveals that this is part of a, a coming cycle of novels. This is the first in something she has kind of mapped out in her head. And she says she envisions all the novels as a response to how men and religion have ruined the world to some extent. Uh, It's delicious, isn't it? I cannot wait. (laughs) Um, So we agree on that one. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine we we will disagree on any of them. I just (laughs) want to hear. So give us another one. Up next, I've been thinking a lot about Harlem Shuffle by Colson Whitehead. Have you read this one yet? I haven't. It's extraordinary. It's fun to see him. I mean, the past two novels have been, the, the two Pulitzer Prize winning novels have been enormous, but it's fun to see him be playful in this one. It feels like him having more fun. It, we can feel him really enjoying himself. It's set in the late 50s and early 60s in Harlem. It's a crime caper. And our main character is a guy named Ray Carney who owns a furniture store in Harlem. He's very upwardly mobile, trying to buy a townhome on Strivers Row. His father, though, was a small-time crook, and everybody expects him to be a crook. He doesn't want to be that, but he's been fencing jewelry on the side. That's a bit of a side hustle to make ends meet. And his cousin is a full-time criminal, and he gets involved in a heist with the cousin to rob the Hotel Teresa in Harlem, which is the Waldorf Astoria of Harlem, or was at the time. Of course, things go quite wrong. That's not a spoiler to say, but um, it's an exuberant novel. It's a love letter to a time and a place, and it's all it happens against the backdrop as the novel progresses of the Harlem riots of 1964. So it's it's very engaged with the social stratification and the racism of the time but it's also just a fun page-turning crime caper and a great family saga too oh it sounds incredible Mm -hmm. i was lucky enough to interview him about the underground railroad that novel is so difficult Mm -hmm. to both to read and i'm sure it was very difficult to write so i'm excited to see that playfulness Mm -hmm. come out in him Okay, hit us with another one. The third one on my list is My Body by Emily Ratajkowski. She's coming on the pod. She's coming. I think I knew that. I think that's incredible. That's going to be amazing. And I haven't read it yet, but Mm -hmm. I'll just give my my background because my day job is in publishing and I run a book imprint. And I remember when that submission came in and everyone had been able to read it was totally blown away by the nuance and the sophistication mm-hmm. of her essays and arguments. So tell me about it. It, it is exactly that. Um, it's a series of essays where she reconsiders the feminist positions of her life and sees the flaws in her feminism. But And it, it's fun to watch her come of age as a feminist in that way. I think that's a really vulnerable, honest thing to do on the page, to reconsider your own principles and activism and and admit where you were wrong or incomplete in your thinking. I think that's brave. But the subject matter of it more is she recaps her experiences in the modeling industry as an actress, as an up-and-comer, as well as somebody extremely famous, as an influencer, goes into how men have commodified her body, controlled her body, how we commodify a woman's sexuality, what toll that takes on a woman. It's heavy stuff and it's 
the way she pulls back the curtain on all of this and, and takes no prisoners is quite beautiful. Oh, I can't wait. Mm-hmm. It sounds like she acknowledges the contradictions that come along with being famous for your body and then wanting to be known for more than that. I think that's part of why it's so important that she's written this book because, I mean, she didn't do it as a public service. She wrote it to understand how she feels. But it it is a public service in a sense for people to receive this book and know that one of the most beautiful women in the world struggles with these ideas and these feelings just as much as the rest of us. Totally. And then what do you do with that knowledge once mm-hmm. you know? I think that's really interesting. Like once you understand the issues around it, do you keep posting the bikini shots or not? It's an interesting question posed by this book and and there's the capitalism of it all too. She writes very honestly about, I wanted to make money. That's why I got into this. I knew I could make a lot of money. I admire her for coming out and saying that. And there's the one essay which ran in the cut where she talks about buying the images of herself back. I think that is something she has done with the knowledge. The The book is an awakening of sorts, and we see her trying to own her image more and make sure that she is the one enriched by it rather than these predatory photographers. Absolutely. And we can't separate the patriarchy, which comes mm-hmm. back to Lauren Groff's novel, with how... We, A, define success, but how in a capitalist world we need money mm-hmm. and that without it you're powerless. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. this is going to be a great fall. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a couple I want to share. I would love to hear about it. And so actually one I haven't read yet but I've been dying to and I just got the galley in and it's coming out on October 5th. And it's called uh, Smile, the Story of a Face by Sarah Rule. Sarah shares her own story of having Bell's palsy, which is where for her a part of her face loses its uh, kind of musculature and drops. And uh, a very close friend of mine had this happen to her when I was living with her. And it goes back to what we were talking about with Emily Radikowski and my body What happens when the way the world sees you shifts and changes and how you feel Mm -hmm. in a world that's taking you in differently Mm -hmm. and how it is just a blow to the confidence but also then the guilt that comes with with asking yourself why did my looks matter so Mm -hmm. much. But but they do in this sense. I mean, our faces are how we communicate, how we express and relate to one another to such a large extent. And if you if you lose part of that, I would imagine that would feel like very isolating. Totally. Well, mm-hmm. I think to a very small extent, we've been through this, mm-hmm. a lot of us collectively, by the mask mm-hmm. and the lack of being able to share you. our smiles. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but there's a woman um, – I've come to know who runs this beautiful farm shop and I hadn't seen the bottom of her Mm -hmm. face ever because Mm -hmm. I met her in the pandemic and it was this crazy moment where I finally saw her smile. Oh, how wonderful. And I was like, there, oh, that's who you are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we kind of had a similar response to one another. So I can only imagine that what it's like to feel like you are not yourself. I know what you mean. I feel like there have been so many times during the pandemic where I'll encounter a dog or a baby. And I'm from the Midwest. We smile at all our neighbors, say hello and that kind of thing. And so you smile at the dog or the baby and they don't know that you're friendly. (laughs) So have you heard about this book as well? 
I have heard about it and I have read, I think the play was called Eurydice that she wrote. It was a gorgeous play, but I'm not otherwise terribly familiar with her work. I'm excited to read this. Yeah. Oh, I have an extra galley. I can give Ooh, thank you. to you if you want. I have to share a book that's very close to my heart and uh, we're helping publish this book and it's called The First Shots. Um, and it's by Brendan Burrell, who's a science writer. And the, the subtitle is, should get it all in there, The Epic Rivalries and Heroic Science Behind the Race to the Coronavirus Vaccine. Uh, it's coming out on October 26th and it's a definitive look at how the vaccine race unfolded. He had incredible access to people within Moderna and the scientists that were coming up with the vaccine there and also within Operation Warp Speed. So it's a really interesting look at understanding how we have the vaccines that are in our arms today. Mm-hmm. So we're really excited about this book and it's also going to be the basis for a limited series at HBO created by Adam McKay, who's known for, you know, the big short succession. So we're hoping, you know, my sell to everyone out there is read the book now before it becomes the series that's going to be everywhere. I'm so excited about this one. I have read the first half and I I completely agree with you about how it valorizes and introduces us to the scientists who whose name isn't publicly attached to this, people in the lab all night grinding really hard to make the discoveries that are important to make, young people who are not hugely experienced yet. I loved meeting all of these different characters are really left out of the public conversation and who have contributed so much to this medical moonshot. And I also loved the chapters. I mean, the access Brendan Morrill got is just incredible to Operation Warp Speed and to all of these politicians and decision makers. He really puts you there in the room, the minute by minute, decision-making process of how this whole rollout unfolded. I'm excited for the scientific community to read it and Mm -hmm. kind of then take it their own way. I'm excited for vaccine skeptics to read it. I mean, you say there's not enough information about it. This is a lot of information. This is nitty gritty science. What more could you ask for? Because we have just been talking about the pandemic, as a writer and editor and someone who's really helping curate both books cultural conversations, you write a lot about TV, which we have to touch upon as Mm -hmm. well. How do you think this pandemic moment has pushed, shaped the conversations we're having with one another and how we digest both information and books? I think it's gone in a few different stages. At the very beginning, I found I personally lost the ability to read in a meaningful capacity. Did that happen to you by chance? It just, I couldn't. It was so heartbreaking because that's my comfort, my passion. It's the architecture of my life. And so when that went away, it was devastating. We weren't the only people. I heard that from a lot of folks that they just couldn't read, couldn't engage meaningfully. And then after that, I think a lot of people wanted escapist fiction. Um, Fun beach reads. They They had regained the ability to read, but didn't want to grapple with something really heavy. And I totally understand that. Um, But the ways we consume books have also changed. I think a lot of people are more flexible about reading on a tablet now or consuming by audiobook, Um, especially people in book media. When they couldn't get galleys to us, we all had to pivot. Um, What else? And something I thought about a lot at the beginning of the pandemic, too, was how this is changing how people in middle America receive books. 
the way it has changed bookstore events. Um, I reported a big feature about this, talked to a lot of booksellers around the country, and virtual events have really changed the game. I'm excited to see where that goes in the future because, I mean, I grew up in a mid-sized city, but we really only had one local independent bookstore. Authors weren't coming through Indiana on their book tour. Now that bookstore can put on a virtual event with an author and people can access it from home. It, it opens the world to people in places where there's not some thriving independent bookstore with a lot of events. So I'm excited to see how that changes things for people. And I hope it lasts. Even when we can have in-person events, there's still a lot of good to be done by virtual events. Or maybe you have an in-person and you also stream it for people around the world. Absolutely. I've heard the same thing that, um, you know, at some virtual events, there would be thousands of people on the line from all over the world, as opposed to the 40 people you might have at McNally Jackson downtown. And I probably like you, I'm craving the in-person, mm -hmm. but there is no reason why we can't share that mm -hmm. with everyone. So it's... Exactly. Yeah. Make the room bigger when we physically can't. I but, love that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so you just mentioned escapist reads, and I definitely had a, a theme in my escapist reading for a mm -hmm. while, and it, it was towards the food writing. Mm -hmm. And I discovered a couple of books that I want to share with people. They're kind of that. older books. One is called The Dirty Life, and it's on farming, food, and life by Kristen Kimball. And I found this in a coffee shop out on the North Fork. It's about a journalist in New York, and I think we've all had this dream as a single person in New York, is that you're going to have a story one day with an act, famous actor oh, or, right. a, you know, someone that you've admired for a long time or, and you'll fall in love with them mm -hmm. and your whole life will change. This is the plot of HBO's Starstruck. Totally. And don't <laughs> we, every time I would think, Maybe this, mm -hmm. who knows? So for, for whatever reason, she has to go to a farm um, in upstate New York and interview this man and it does change her life and they end up becoming farmers but really hardcore, like no electric, no oh, wow. tractors. It's very much like an Amish style of farming. Mm -hmm. This book is totally brilliant. I've and got to read this. I, I think because she has that city slick kind of downtown cool girl mm -hmm. vibe with this radical change in her life, it was really fun to read. And then on, on another food kick, the great New Yorker writer Bill Buford. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I came across uh, Dirt, which I think came out in the pandemic, mm -hmm. And it's about moving his family to France and working in these very fancy kitchens of like very famous French chefs. But it is a true escapist read. My escapist reads, I always reread the Lord of the Rings series. Um, you know, some kids had Harry Potter. I had Lord of the Rings. That's one of my big obsessions. My friends and I, when we have our monthly game night, we'll do a, a presentation period of the evening where we teach each other something. I made them suffer through a brief history of Middle Earth <laughs> that's how much I geek out about it. So it's always a great comfort to me to reread that. Wait, and so these, this reading group you have, are you always reading Lord of the Rings? And no, it's, it's, we just do game night, but we each pick something we really geek out about at the beginning to teach people about. So 
I taught about Lord of the Rings one time. I've taught about Mary Shelley another time. I've learned about the history of sailing, Typhoid Mary. Someone did a presentation about her. It's a lot of fun. I would recommend this to anybody. This sounds absolutely brilliant. I think this is one of the great things in life. I mean, we all have these private obsessions that we know a lot about. And and I love nothing more than meeting someone who's passionate and learning what obsesses them. That's often when I connect with a writer and they say, what can I pitch you? That's often what I tell them. Tell me what you're obsessed with. I think the best pieces and the best conversations grow from that. Do you have some other obsessions you can share beyond Lord of the Rings? I was also a big mythology kid. That has never gone away. Um, I love reading novels about mythology, nonfiction about mythology. That spills over into Greek and Roman history. I love that stuff. Any book in particular that has done that well for you in the last couple of years? I mean, we, we can't get away from Circe. Yeah. I think that is really just a, a tentpole of the genre, something that can modernize the story without losing that great inheritance. Um, I think she made, Miller made Circe into a, I hate the word relatable in fiction often, but I mean, we could really latch into her journey as a woman coming into her power and her destiny. That was beautifully done. And and the book has such a sense of adventure and place. I'm excited to see it become an HBO show. I also think it was almost like a gateway mm-hmm. book to a whole group of readers who might not have been exposed to mythology mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. I think that's the beauty of these novels. They are They are user-friendly. They welcome the reader with open arms. You don't have to know who the god of archery is to enjoy the book. And... You know, if you are inspired to find that out after the book, great. It's a portal to a whole world. They're like gateway drugs for people to get into mythology. Okay, so now we've covered your kind of where you go to maybe soothe yourself. Anything you've read lately or that's coming out that you think is an important critical book that will really spark conversation? There's a book coming out called Home, comma, Land, comma, Security by Carla Power. It's a work of nonfiction out this fall. Deeply reported book about how people are radicalized and de-radicalized. She traveled the world on this. She goes to parts of the Middle East where there are these reform schools for boys who are radicalized by terrorist groups. Um, she speaks with families of young men, people in their early 20s who were radicalized. And really, I think, pads out this conversation of how this happens to people, especially young men and boys, um, how we can change it and and who is left behind by it. These families are very heartbroken. Um, And it is not a black and white conversation. You know, I think it often can be flattened to that, that these people are bad people, simply. They were always bad people, and that's why they were taken in by it. But the book gets into how these young men maybe weren't bad guys. They just were... Well, I don't want to let them off the hook, but you know what I mean? It, it's more complicated than that. There are these forces on the internet and in these groups that radicalize them, terrorist groups, incel groups. It just really makes this conversation more human, and I think that's very important. Most difficult things that happen in the world are so complicated, and we rely on incredible writers and with these minds that can help us place together the nuance I read something recently that was talking about how social media and Twitter, you know, this limiting of characters has flattened so many conversations, Mm -hmm. whereas most topics that are 
controversial or just so complicated need an entire book Mm -hmm. or more to even grasp the complexity of it. I think that's the beauty of this book. It is a deeply reported book that has gone all the way around the world to try to wrap its arms around this large subject. To go now to something a little lighter, potentially, mm-hmm. of course, it's, I can't have you on here without asking you about some celebs that you've mm-hmm. had uh, positive run-ins with and um, wondering if you've had any highlights in the last year or so mm-hmm really great people, but also if you've learned something unexpected from them. I Have you watched Hacks on HBO Max? No. It's a great show, kind of a, a celebration of comedy and women in stand-up comedy. Um, the main character is Gene Smart, or the character is Deborah Vance, played by Gene Smart, who's this legendary pioneering feminist stand-up comic. Um, and she is she has a Las Vegas residency, which she is in danger of losing. And to save her residency, she's paired up with a young writer um, who has been canceled by the internet. And this is her one shot at reviving her career. But there are these two characters who are kind of side characters in the show. One is played by Paul W. Downs, who is the one of the creators of the show. He was on Broad City. Um, he plays their shared manager. And he has an assistant named Kayla, played by Meg Stalter, an up-and-coming comedian who went really viral during the pandemic. Um, And Kayla is a terrible assistant, but a really earnest person, really unique person, very much herself. Um, And I wrote a feature about Paul W. Downs and Meg Stalter, their comedic partnership, because they are just so electric on the screen. And it was so fun to speak with them, partly because they're just such funny, generous people. But they talked a lot about comedy during the pandemic and how this time has made it possible to, you can't do stand-up in a room, right? So you have to do it online. And it has widened the audience. It has made it easier to try out material in some ways. You don't get the feedback of laughs, but you can be more experimental. You can do things that nobody would laugh in the room, but they will laugh online. It was. It's just always fascinating to meet people from a dis- different discipline, you know, and see how that's changing their world. Definitely. I have a couple of friends who are comedians, and I think... They're so thrilled to be back on stage, but watching the shows online was a completely different experience. As someone who gets to choose Mm -hmm. who and what to cover and why, Mm -hmm. you're helping us all kind of uh, point in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering where you've been getting your ideas, but also how in a pandemic situation that changes. Myself, I found that even just walking around New York City, an idea will come to me mm-hmm. from seeing a billboard or, or something or having a you know, candid conversation with mm-hmm. a friend. Or um, What's the kind of alchemy that happens when you know that's what I want to write about? It's boring to say, but I mean, of course, I think my nose is always led by quality. You just you're really knocked off your feet by an incredible book or an incredible TV show or someone's performance within that TV show. That is always what sucks me in. But I think also part of how I generate ideas is thinking about what we are missing, what we haven't done much of. Like I'm always attracted to up and comers, um, people who are new that we haven't told their story before, or told a story like theirs. I'm always looking for that kind of thing. Now I want to go to 
your media consumption mm-hmm. and how as someone in the media whether you have limits on your interaction but also where where you go what are your go-to places mm-hmm. sometimes I will read a story that was reported in WAPO or something and then go to see if Fox has reported it and how they have changed the framing um, I think that's being a responsible journalist looking at all sides of how it's been covered and and then asking myself what can I contribute whose voice hasn't been heard? Um, What are the limits of this reporting? How can we push past them? But as for my media consumption, I mean, I I start my day with book media. I like to go on book Twitter, see what people are buzzing about. Um, I like to go on Lit Hub or Electric Lit, NPR Books, New York Times Book Review, um, maybe glance at Book Talk or Bookstagram, that kind of stuff. Seeing what's happening in the conversation is often how I think is is there a kind of newsy book story we should cover today I love that you start with the book world because I feel Mm -hmm. as kind of subsets of the culture go it's a pretty kind one it is but I my theory is that I love covering books and I think it's one of the best things to cover because so many conversations start there you can consume the whole world through books you can learn about any topic in the news through books that's often an angle I try to take on the news or on even entertainment. So for example, that movie Judas and the Black Messiah that came out, we wanted to cover that. We weren't sure how. I found a book by a lawyer named Jeffrey Haas who represented the Black Panthers in Chicago. He had written a memoir of that time. So I interviewed him about his life and his book. It, you know what I mean of like, you can find a way into any story through books. It's not just the story of the books. They can lead you to breaking news stories. They can be a way to understand it better. And and it's such a privilege to call up all these smart, experienced people who want to talk about what they know. I love that thought because we haven't talked too much about your uh, TV Mm -hmm. and film reporting. And I think, you know, like we all devour those, you know, five things to watch this Mm -hmm. fall because I feel like we're all just totally overwhelmed by what's out there. Mm -hmm. Is there something that's either on TV at the moment or something that's coming out that you feel is going to be a really special, interesting conversation moment? Hmm. You know, I'm still in this, I have moved past the pandemic weirdness with books, but I'm still in a strange place with TV where I'm not really into dramas right now or anything particularly heavy. Maybe this has happened to you too. At the end of the day, you spent your whole day thinking about books and hard things. And it's just like, I just want to laugh. Oh, when Mayor of Easttown was on, mm-hmm. I started and I thought as much as I adore mm-hmm. Kate Winslet, I can't watch this right now. And, and I think that's the kind thing to do for yourself and for the show. I mean, sometimes I start something like that and I think I'm not giving this my all. I'm going to put it away until I can show up for this thing. So what That's I'm watching. a very generous point of view. <laughs> well, I, I like. You have to be in your. I don't want to miss it. I don't, you know, I want to be present for it. So I'll put it away until I can be. But so I'm watching a lot of comedies. Um, what We Do in the Shadows just came back. I love that show about these vampires living in Staten Island. Do you watch? I just remember the, the original movie. Mm-hmm. So I haven't watched the show yet. It's so fantastic. It's so deeply weird. And Sex Education is coming back. Do you watch this on Netflix? I do. I love that. I love it so much. Um, I've seen the screeners of season three and they're tremendous. I think it's the blend of humor and heart that the show has always had, but they go in some interesting new directions with the students growing up um, and the students experiencing 
bigotry and discrimination for the first time and how hard that is. I love that they've gone there. Um, and on another light note, the Babysitter's Club is coming back on Netflix. Did you read these when you were a kid? Of course. I love them so much. Which one are you? Which are the girls? So I didn't, I read them and I don't know which girl I am. Mm -hmm. And I know I was interviewed before and I've had the same question come at me and I'm like, I didn't know we were meant to choose the girls. Like That's which probably one healthy. was like us? Mm -hmm. There's a test you can take on Netflix. They have one for you if you want to find out. <laughs> but I mean, the, I think that show's so great. It, it's for adolescent girls, but I still think there's something for adults to get there. Um, it's also a great show about community, which I think is part of why I love it. Like nobody in Stony Brook, Connecticut is going to be caught without their mask, you know? Like everybody really shows up, does their civic and community responsibility. The children are part of that too. It's not just on adults. Um, it Maybe it's idealistic, but it's a really great model of what happens when everybody in the community shows up. And it's just plain fun. Oh, it Takes sounds, me back to being 11. Oh, it sounds lovely. Um, my last question for you is what lights you up? Oh, gosh. I mean, is it is it facile to say books when that's what we've been talking about the whole time? But, I mean, you you read a great book and I find I just want to go on the street and shake people and be like, you have to read this. I want to talk about this. I, I guess the book lights me up, the experience of enjoying it in my head and thinking about it, but then – Wanting to talk to people about it is the natural outcome of that, which is what makes it hard to be a, a journalist covering books because no one else is going to read it for six months except other people who work in this field. But that, that sense of community that can arise around books, I would say, and conversation. Well, I have to ask you the question that you mm -hmm. said that you always ask anyone you're interviewing. <laughs> is there anything else I need to know that we haven't talked about? I don't think so. It's been so wonderful to be here. I'm so grateful to you for having me on. It was such a pleasure. And as I mentioned, I think we're going to, you've got to be a regular. Oh, I would be honored. Come I back. would love to come back. Thank you so much. Keep those lists going. It's been such a pleasure to talk to Thank you. Thank you, you too. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode with Adrian Westenfeld. Adrian's work can be read in Esquire and on Esquire.com. Next week, we have author and science journalist Brendan Burrell to talk about The First Shots, his book about the vaccine race. I'm so excited to have him on. See you next week. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.